Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB, and Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi. And today we're speaking with Jonathan Lethem. We've just learned the correct way to pronounce his name. I, I do think I used to say Lethem. I For totally many said years. Lethem. We're so sorry, Jonathan. Yeah, but I'm glad that we got it right. We have set the matter straight. And Jonathan's new book is More Alive and Less Lonely on Books and Writers, which I very much enjoyed and got a lot of good book recommendations from this collection. Yes, totally. lots totally. of stuff to read. Jonathan is obviously a voracious and very discerning reader. So it was also a pleasure kind of just diving into his reading oh, yeah. world. Yeah, great to talk to him. Let's listen. We are very lucky to have Jonathan Lethem here today with us. Jonathan Lethem is a novelist, essayist, and short story writer. He has penned many notable titles, including the novels Gun with Occasional Music, Motherless Brooklyn, which won a National Book Critics Circle Award, The Fortress of Solitude, Dissident Gardens, and most recently, A Gambler's Anatomy, a novel, which was published in 2016. He was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2005, and he has written for publications such as The New Yorker, McSweeney's, and The Paris Review. He's also, I'm proud to say, a contributing editor for the LA Review of Books, and currently he serves as the Roy Edward Disney Professor of Creative Writing and English at Pomona College. His new collection of essays, More Alive and Less Lonely, on books and writers, was published this spring. Jonathan, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. That was a nice introduction, except I never penned those books. I typed them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I can maybe barely we pen can... my own name. Uh, maybe can... Oh, really? Bad <laughs> handwriting? Yeah, bad handwriting. Mm. Yeah. I'm surprised. I thought we could start by talking about your reading life, since this book is so much about books right. and the love of books. So I wonder if you have a current routine. So are you always shifting your routine and what kind of role magazines and book reviews uh, play yeah. in your routine? And if you have any bad habits you want to share, <laughs> any yeah. aspirational you know, struggles? Don't we all have the same bad habit now? They've concentrated bad habits into one giant ball called the internet and we can right. all have the same one. <laughs> right. But I actually think about my reading life a lot because of something we were just talking about before we went live, which is the changes that come with adding children to your life. I was a, for big stretches of my teenage years and through my 20s, I was just a completely voracious, compulsive reader. I would really finish a book and pick up the next one in an afternoon. Mm. And I would keep track and it was a vanity, but it was also just an excitement that I knew I was reading like, you know, 20 or 25 books a month. And I really did that for a long time. And a lot of things chip away at that. Right. Your eyesight does, but also the kind of books you choose. I started being a little bit more interested in style. Once I was writing a lot of sentences, I noticed sentences differently. And so I would slow down and I would choose books that required that I slowed down. And so I just was reading things that I couldn't speed through in the same way. So that was an interesting change. But I still, you know, the intake was really high and I really felt excited about that and nourished by that. And like my writing life was constantly being replenished by reading all the time. And then kids just absolutely wreck that. They trash <laughs> it. I think they hurt reading 
more than they hurt writing, actually. Because for me, I feel, you know, the writing is this active vocation and it's the thing that demands that you do it. It's not okay. It's not like breaking rocks, but it's physical. You move into it. You put your hands on the thing and you're like, I'm writing now. Reading is apparently very passive and quiet. You're just inert, turning pages. And if there's a charming, beautiful child who's the rival to that, and you're like, don't bother me, I'm reading, you feel monstrous. Mm, yeah. And also, writing can be a little more adrenaline or caffeinated. In my case, it's very caffeinated. Reading is a bit quieter. And if you're exhausted all the time, which children do, then you read a page and you fall asleep immediately. Right. So actually, I found that my children didn't destroy my writing life, but they did for a number of years really destroy my reading life. And I missed it terribly. It was really gone. It was like I was still buying books at the same rate and I watched them piling up unread and it was really confusing to me. I would like pretend that I'd read them so that I could buy <laughs> new ones. Right. And I felt tragic about this loss because it was such a defining but how uh, can you part of me. write if you're not reading? Well, I did come to a crisis with that. And one of the things that happened was in the ditch when I had one toddler and then we'd added a new baby, which is the worst time, you know, for a little while, two people were in diapers and there was just never, you know, you no longer outnumber them and it's just really bad. <laughs> I had also conceived a gigantic project, which was Dissident Gardens. And I wrote about 100 pages of it out of sheer will. And then I stopped and I realized that I'd created a maybe with a kind of weird, uncanny good luck. I'd created an idea for a book that required a lot of research that I couldn't write. I couldn't go a page further into without reading hundreds of books that I'd never read. Mm. I had to understand all kinds of things about the 20th century that I just hadn't ever gotten around to even trying to understand. And I had to read a lot of old novels written by socialists that no one reads anymore and accounts of, you know, the American communist movement. So I stopped writing my novel, but I had a driven research imperative for these years. And it was both fiction and nonfiction. It was all sorts of eccentric, different kinds of research that I had to accumulate to make that book possible. And I actually had like a two-year break in the middle of a novel, which I've never had before, mm. where my reading was the most important thing. And in a way, it was like my reading life just, you know, demanded that I reclaim it. So and during that time, were you writing anything at all? Or when you went into your office, you would just be well, doing concentrated reading? Because it would have made me too demoralized not to be kind of making a book of some kind. Right. What I did in that interlude, the two years of stoppage in Dissident Gardens progress was I put together this kind of catastrophic life survey of all my weird little things I'd written and called it the ecstasy of influence, ah, okay. which is like this kaleidoscopic, you know, I based it on partly on the way Norman Mailer would assemble those nonfiction compilations like advertisements for myself or cannibals and Christians, where he would take all his tiny little blurbs and book reviews and incidental things he'd been asked to write and he'd throw them into a pile and then he'd write about them and say, well, why did I do this? And was it any good? Or, you know, was it a mistake? And that kind of writing I could keep alive while I was having this predominant research time. Very smart. I feel like I recently went through a similar time of no reading. I might still be in the midst of it. And it does feel really oppressively tragic that as a person who has possibly in some way shaped oneself around the act of reading, to no longer be doing it. It's like you've stopped sleeping or something for a really long time and you feel horrible and exhausted and scared that you may never, <laughs> you may never read again. 
so like it's kind of heartening to hear that it's, it happens to other people. Yeah, it's pretty demoralizing. And I know a lot of people read less than they did during their, you know, the peak. And I still don't read as much. But I, I did kind of really consciously reclaim it. And actually, getting your eyes checked is a really important part of that. <laughs> because you can be semi-consciously choosing the television or some other activity because reading has gotten more physically difficult. Mm. The book, you have to hold it at a weird distance from your eyes and you're just, you kind of give up without noticing you've given up on this thing that's become harder to do. So there's my advice. There's Dr. Lethem's advice. You know, go get your eyes checked too. But Or um, don't age. Well, or don't that's, age. That's you can good. try that. Okay. That's my new advice. But also, I just, we were talking about how I got here today. I took the Metrolink. And, you know, when I lived in New York City, growing up, I read on the subway. I would read a book every day on my way to high school and back. I had a long journey on the A-train from Brooklyn up to Harlem. And that seems really organic to me. And I was lucky enough to get invited to the, on my sabbatical, I was at the Berlin, the American Academy in Berlin. Hmm. And I was living there. And of course, I wasn't teaching, which is a huge advantage. But I was also taking the S-Bahn and the U-Bahn. And I suddenly was reading on urban trains again. And I realized, oh, this is a big key for me. So today I, I had a, a hardcover book with me and I was reading it on the Metro Lake. That's nice. There's no, no wireless signal. and Does internet and email and all those things as well as children? Yeah, I mean, of course, course it cuts just, in. And... Yeah. I mean, that stuff is so infiltrative. You know, it's like zombies coming and always there's another one you have to kill at the door. You know? <laughs> right. Um, Since New York just came up and as a Queens girl also, I was wondering, is there a way in which, or other ways in which moving to a place like L.A. has changed, maybe not only your reading schedule, which it certainly does that because the subway is the perfect place to feel miserable and read at the same time, but in other ways, what, now that you are in California. Yeah, now that I'm in California. Well, I always want to remind people, because I propagate helplessly this image of like the Brooklyn kid who would probably be completely out of whack if he wasn't in contact with his native terrain. I actually lived in California in my 20s, too. I was living in Berkeley. And this is my second, I think I've spent more of my adult life in California now than in New York, oh. actually, if you count it up, maybe just now, as of I'm six years or into the seventh year here teaching at Pomona College. But that said, the comparison obsesses me, and it's two parts of myself, two different lives. And, you know, I write books set in both places, and I wonder at who I am in these two different places. But it's also difficult to sort that comparison out for me personally from some of the other stuff we're, you know, talking about directly or alluding to. I mean, I've gotten a lot older and I have two kids and I'm a full-time college professor. When I lived in Berkeley in my 20s, it was like this heedless existence. I was working in bookstores and I had a tiny little apartment in the Berkeley Flats. And all I did was, you know, was read and go to... Uh, you know, old movies at the Pacifica Film Archive and write, you know, my apprentice fiction, write these, you know, unpublished stories and novels. And of course, it was the best life I could ever have. But I came back here and everything's different after, you know, going to New York and, you know, the one thing and another, the good fortune I've had with the books and then creating a family. I come back here and I get this crazy job and suddenly I'm like defined by my institutional privileges and responsibilities. I'm a total, you know, I'm like, Professor Lethem with office hours and a syllabus and a faculty meeting. And then I go and I pick the kids up and I volunteer at their school. I'm just totally, everything for me is about 
affiliations and I have a lucky life in middle age, but it's totally different from my lucky life First in my twenties. You meant that you pick your students up from school? No, oh no, and yeah. You, no. And I was like, wow, no. that is a very, very dedicated professor. I, I actually make my college students lunch boxes and, and I, I, <laughs> you go to their yeah. meeting. You, no, no, yeah. I don't do that. Are you nostalgic in any way for those days when I mean, it's always comparative freedom or relative freedom, right? But like, do you get nostalgic for that kind of time as like a writer or is that more just I always am where I am? Well, yeah, I mean, it's life. Lots of both, right? The time when I was, I mean, I talk about this with my students because they want to talk about where they are, which is they're, you know, feeling their way into the idea that they might write fiction or just that they might write after college. And they want to know, you know, what I have to tell them about it. So I'm put into this, I have to kind of account for that part of my life, honestly, to them. And it's starting to seem that the conditions of being a beginner then, you know, are like unimaginably different from the world that they live in now. And some of that is the internet and some of that is publishing and some of that is just, you know, you get old and you become like a voyager in time, someone who is reporting from other frameworks, times when in ways that are very hard to even give a complete name to, what it felt like to be young or what it felt like to want to be an artist was just different from what I think the world is like. Wait, can for you them talk now. a little bit about what that's like? Because on the one hand, I mean, my own small experience of it was being uh, graduating from New York University in 2005 and then working as an editorial assistant at Condé Nast. I was able to afford a kind of life that was, it was fancy free in that way, but I could live in Alphabet City making virtually no money. And now that's impossible. Well, certainly in New York, it's really kind of off the table. I mean, you have like, I really admire their bravery. Some of my students still go off and try to do it. And they live like three or four to an apartment in, you know, distant on the ends of subway lines in Queens or Brooklyn. And some of them manage, you know, so... The thing about change is they're never complete. You know, it's like we're moving into the future in this irregular right. way. And some people are still making pockets of that world that you're describing right. viable. But mostly it seems incredible that New York could have been affordable that way. Or for me, you know, the Bay Area, that's where I was oh, enacting that. And, oh, God, that place is so gilded now. It's impossible not to talk about it in kind of Rebecca Solnit terms as this new gold rush period. But then again, you know, that's why I keep hearing these really intriguing reports from like Tulsa, Oklahoma or Pittsburgh that, you know, they're sort of like a new place to do certain things. Now, is that exactly the same as being in the traditional capital of being in New York City and walking into the Met one day or going to see a reading at the 92nd Street Y the next night, all more or less for free while you're starving in your garret? No, it's really different if you've chosen to go to Pittsburgh. But, you know, any general statement you make about these things starts to feel kind of unsafe yeah. because people are inventing themselves. I mean, this is a beautiful thing about having students is you see that you'd be very foolish to make any sweeping, you know, kind of uh, get off my lawn remarks about what it consists of to be young in the post 9-11 age yeah. or the internet age. They are all in their own forges and they find what they need in different ways and they make themselves as you and I did, you know, under conditions that probably in a lot of ways, people probably looked at me when I was living my, you know, I call it the fact sheet five era. <laughs> um, and people don't really know what that is anymore, which is fine. It was like zines. Zines were our internet. But I'm sure there were like people in my parents' generation, the beatniks and the hippies and the early punks who looked at, you know, me and my whatever we were, Gen X, 
I mean, I was like a little old for Gen X. I was like the last boomer or the first Gen X. I'm really a person without a generation. But whatever I was, I'm sure there are people who looked at me and were like, oh, God, pathetic that they're still trying to make that work, you know? <laughs> the party's over, man. True. Just, True. just go corporate. Forget <laughs> about so it. That's so funny. <laughs> Speaking of being young or younger, there's a funny little footnote in this collection where you talk about looking back at some of your first criticisms and feeling embarrassed because of your tone and <laughs> yeah. the way you were going about writing things. But so you must have been a fairly established writer by the time you started trying to write criticism because it seems like that was the earliest pieces in here from about 98 or that's, so. That's dead on. I was, I mean, it was partly a matter of my strong self-identification as an artist, not a critic and not an intellectual. I grew up, you know, my father was a painter. I went to art school for high school. I went to music and art and I basically blew off all my, you know, book learning in favor of carving marble and making paintings. Wow. Junior and senior year of high school. I really, I, the last math class I took and passed was probably at age 14 or 15. I was a college dropout. And when I turned to the idea of writing novels and stories instead of making art objects, making paintings or sculptures or comic books or films, all of which were things I flirted with, it was on this basis of, I'm a maker of things. I'm not a commentator. I'm not like a public intellectual or a critic. I just wanted to make stories the way someone might want to make a film or a poem or decorate a cake. It was like I wanted to make. And so, of course, you're always divided. In fact, I was a very eager consumer because I wanted to know what the world of writing consisted of. I was reading a lot of writers like, say, Anthony Burgess, who also wrote a lot of critical pieces. And I would read their compendiums. You know, he had one called Homage to Quirt Eope, the first line of letters on his typewriter, mm -hmm. which was his version of Mailer's advertisements for myself. It was all his collected interviews and reviews and occasional pieces. And so I knew that writers did this sort of thing too, but I always thought, no, I'm going to be one of the, it wasn't a matter of purity, but it was more like I'm geared towards art. I make things for other people to ideally, if it works, to wonder at and be fascinated with. I don't make remarks for people to think about. And so I had to be kind of talked into it. And it was Laura Miller at Salon, very specifically, who said, you know, why don't you review a book or two for me? And she also got me writing a couple of film reviews early on. I was actually, for an instant in time, I was one of Salon's regular film reviewers. I think I reviewed four movies. And then I said, okay, I did that. <laughs> but it was Laura who said to me, look, you're a writer and you, you know, when we talk, you have ideas and opinions about films and books. Why don't you try that? But I'd written hundreds of short stories, published and unpublished, mostly unpublished. I'd written four novels, three of them published, before I'd really given myself to the effort to write an essay or a review. Wow. So I was really like, I am fiction. I am for fiction. I am not for this nonfiction thing. And I had to learn to do it. But then when I did... As I confess in this book, I came in so pretentious and self-conscious about it. I mean, when I first was putting this book together, I joked, but it wasn't completely a joke, that the title ought to be Overcompensating Autodidact <laughs> um, or Autocompensating Overdidact, something like that. Because I was a college dropout, I borrowed this posh tone from, well, precisely from like Anthony Burgess's book reviews. I really wanted to write in this erudite way about cultural things when I was asked to do it. And so the early pieces just seemed very clenched. Yeah. And like I'm just posing as a, you know, or, you know, I'd been reading like Updike's Hugging the Shore, 
So I've got this fake patrician tone that's just like, what? Right. Why are you, who are you? You know, I thought you were some sort of feral child of Brooklyn and here you're like scratching your chin like Alistair Cook on Masterpiece Theater. <laughs> Wait, but why can't you be both those things? Well, I, I guess I sort of am. You because am. I'd, absor- are, I'd, absor- right? I'd absorbed like, all this stuff. And so that's in there too. It's not like it's, one is false. It's just the amalgamation that is me came out in weird, awkward ways initially. And then I smoothed them out and found a voice that I'm more comfortable with. But of course, it's not that there's a natural me and that I was falsifying. It was that I'm a patchwork. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. Medea Ocher, and I am here at the Los Angeles Times Book Festival. We are lucky to have Dana Spiota here to recommend a book. Dana, what a book do you want to recommend? Uh, the book I'm recommending is The Man Who Shot Out My Eye is Dead by Chanel Benz. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it's a book of short stories. Uh, they're kind of fierce and inventive short stories. Some of them have historical content, and they're not sort of anachronistic. They're kind of tough and uh, do a lot of research, and they're very kind of sentence-focused. I would say she's uh, Cormac McCarthy, kind of feminist Cormac McCarthy. That is a crazy characterization. Uh, that's what I've been missing. I know, I think, I think that's what I think need. I've been missing a feminist Cormac that's McCarthy. That's what we've all been missing. I, I, all I want to see is feminist rage and violence. <laughs> that's um. exactly, it is pretty violent, <laughs> but it's, 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 um, it's brutal, but it's wonderfully well-written. Yeah. It sounds great. Will you tell us the title again? Nothing? Yeah, The Man Who Shot Out My Eye is Dead by Chanel Benz, out from Echo Press this year. Thank this you so much, Dana Spiota, for joining us and for that recommendation. Thank you. We have a quick announcement. On July 1st, the LA Review of Books will be hosting a guest in Los Angeles, The editor of the Paris Review, Lauren Stein, will be joining us for cocktails at a private home in Silver Lake, and we hope our readers and listeners can make it and join us for literary conversation, drinks, and some fun. To find out more about it, go to our website, thelreviewofbooks.org. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our conversation with Jonathan Lethem, whose new collection is More Alive and Less Lonely. You have to figure out persona in just such a different way as a critic than you do as a fiction yeah. writer. You don't have to. Yeah, well, who are yeah, you talking to? Exactly. I mean, initially, Laura gave me a great help in that sense that she was saying, say like the kind of things you're saying to me when we walk out of a movie theater. Right. You know, you said you said something interesting. And so at least I could think I'm, you know, I'm writing for like to impress Laura Miller, <laughs> right. um, which was useful because it's very different from writing a short, a short story or a novel. Yeah. And how, what's your relationship to criticism now? Do you enjoy it? Do you have ideas for reviews occasionally or I mean, mostly your approach? I mostly, you know, I, I'm amazed at how many stacked up. I, di- I have done quite a lot of them. Not like a John Updike hugging the shore quantity, but there's a bunch. I never really feel like I achieved or wanted to achieve a kind of uh, floor of credibility as a working reviewer. I've done it sometimes, but I think that taking that on doesn't suit me. I've got other purposes. And so most I take the chance 
to write about cultural stuff when I say yes to it, because it gives me a chance to think about something in my experience, in myself, or in culture, or in literary culture, in a slightly larger framework that I'm eager to think about, along with, you know, saying what I thought of this particular object. Right. And even saying that, I say no a lot. I spend a lot of my time instead introducing old out-of-print things. And a lot of this book is, you know, introductions to rediscovered books. Um, oh, speaking of which, I was really fascinated and heartened by your, um, the essay that you wrote about the New York Review of Books classics. Um, it was a short piece that I think you did for Rolling Stone. Yeah. Right? Uh, well, no, for the uh, for Book Forum. For Book Forum. Yeah. So one of the things that I liked about that is obviously my husband and I love that not only the, like, I think you had this great line about it, it's like the dessert after dinner is the cover design of those books, which are also like <laughs> yeah. very pleasant to the eye. Yeah. Um, but also that they reintroduced us to, uh, and it sounds like you as well, to kind of um, artists and books that we might have totally skipped over. You mentioned Renata Adler's Speedboat. To that, I would just add Q. Jin's Notes of a Crocodile and also Vicky Baum. I'm reading Vicky Baum's The Grand Hotel right now. Oh, I haven't got to that really, one, but I'm really very fun. eager it's to, It's 1920s yeah. Berlin. It's oh, very weird. I mean, what an incredible publishing program that becomes a reading program. You end up with this beautiful uniform shelf in your house and you've read, you know, I actually cluster the NYRB editions so that all the ones I've read are on one side and it's like I'm moving <laughs> through them like a meal or a, I don't know, yeah, you know, like innings in a baseball game. I just, I'm so thrilled at what they've done. And yeah, I mean, Don Carpenter, I knew about before the republication. And so I can feel this kind of smug proprietary, you know, I helped even whisper mm. in Edwin Frank's ear and say, you got to do Don Carpenter. Others, and most of them are things that I've, you know, maybe in my years as a bookseller, I saw a copy once. You're I, was like, I about, wonder what yeah. that is. I mean, what an extraordinary job they've done. And there's so many, even uh, L.J. Davis, who who I knew growing up, ex enjoyed that one beautiful moment back in the sun. If you haven't read A Meaningful mm, Life by, by L.J. Davis, one of the great ones. Mm. I mean, Stoner, they've completely right. established John Williams you know, in the American canon in a way. It's just incredible. Well, why do you think that that's been so successful? Because you point to Stoner and um, and Speedboat, I think, as yeah. being the it books of, of the summer, even though they came out many, many summers before they were the it books. I mean, for me, it's it gratifies so many of my personal impulses that I'm very suspicious of my own, like, you know, it's, mm. it's an infatuation. I grew up reading books I found in used bookstores. I was oblivious to the present publishing reality was I wasn't tuned into it. And I found things because people pressed books on me and I found things because I'd get interested in, you know, this person blurbed or introduced this. Well, I better find out who they are. You know, if, right. if it's, uh, you know, Kingsley Amos, who said that I should read G.K. Chesterton's uh, The Man Who Was Thursday. Well, maybe I would like Kingsley Amos, you know, and I, I was always reading stuff that was out of print and out of fashion. And that was, you know, I was, I didn't pay any attention to national boundaries. It took me a long time to even notice sometimes, oh, this was translated, you know, okay. So this was in another language, you know, it was like a much more organic relationship. Okay. And it was not about what's contemporary. Now, what are we in? We're in this, like Douglas Rushkoff calls it now, where we can't get out of the idea of the contemporary and the breaking news is all there is. And mm. the, past is just always being erased. And I love the way the NYRB books cut against this. And I think if they've succeeded, well, this is how it feels to me. It's because actually the the long now creates this unacknowledged or unarticulated appetite, this loss of pastness, of old things with curious patina on them that speak to us from weird nooks and crannies. You know, 
it's very different to go, you know, you can read Joyce's Ulysses, and that's a great book, and it's obviously an older book, but it's gigantic consensus claim, you know, that everyone recognizes it as organizing, you know, literary history. Subsequent to Ulysses, everything has to, you know, in some way, like, make room for it or acknowledge it or reject it. But if you read, let's say, Flann O'Brien, because it, it didn't take over the universe, you're having a very different experience. You know, you read The Third Policeman and you're voyaging into this other cultural time and space and it's much more intimate. This is something that for me, you know, it's one reason I still don't read a lot of the big new books that have come out because they feel too public. And I really like the private, intimate, one-to-one relationship you can have with an author in a book. For that reason, I'll always sort of prefer Flann O'Brien to, to James Joyce because when I'm with Flann O'Brien, I'm like alone with him. It's just a different kind of encounter. It's interesting that you're almost suggesting that it's like, or if I'm getting this right, that your aloneness with the the, the deep intimacy that you feel with those kind of works is also because of their extreme distance from your own experience, right? If contemporary novels are too public, right, they're too much part of your everyday experience, the present, the presentness of now. In fact, it seems like, well, I can feel more intimacy with something that's actually quite different. Well, I mean... I'm not really judging their insides, their te- the text, the exact, I mean, there, there are many contemporary novels that if someone does get me to read them, I'm in awe of, I'm really fascinated by, and different people's brains are voyages unto themselves, just because they're my contemporary doesn't mean it's going to be like, oh yeah, that's familiar, hmm. that's, they're not telling me anything. And in fact, often I'll read, I'll, I'll discover 10 years too late, what was the book of a big moment, and I'll be like, oh, that was great, I can see why, it, but it's just, I need a slightly more occult yeah. Encounter okay. in some way. It's more private if it if not everyone is yeah. reading and consuming and having yeah. their thoughts and opinions about it. And so I think perhaps to make a big sweeping theory that is therefore almost absolutely completely wrong, <laughs> the internet and the gigantic size of our collective consciousness right now and the way the present is always this frenzy of breaking news and culture is encompassed in that. It creates a hunger for these more occult kinds of encounters, more like the kinds I had growing up, going into used bookstores and finding books where, you know, I wouldn't know if anyone had, I might, you know, pick up Henry Green's Party Going and I'd be like, maybe I'm the only person on earth reading this book. Maybe every person who ever read this book has already died. (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to ask you, um, I I really like the Wallace piece in here a lot, just because I think it really avoids the kind of hagiography that people normally associate with David Foster Wallace. Um, and that this issue of, you know, not always going towards the contemporary novel comes up to me a little bit. Sure, in it. it's in there. Yeah. yeah. And I wondered, was that, has that been ever like difficult for you being such a visible contemporary novelist where I'm sure you're meeting a lot of people who are also novelists and you haven't read their books? I mean, is well, that a problem? I actually, I suppose I've probably solved this by going through the other side. I'm so excessively gregarious because I actually really like hanging out with writers. I, I do not feel, I mean, there are times when it's wearisome and I want to, I want to be with, you know, my kids or, ta- or talk about sports with someone, but I am, I like shop talk. I identify enormously with both my students and with older writers and also with people my exact age who are driven to the world that I care for, you know. So I like writers, and I hang out with lots of them. And it's to me, it's as eager a re- reader as I am. It's obvious that we can't all. You can like a lot more people than you can read, right? Especially if you're going to make room for uh, George Gissing and and Elizabeth Hardwick and and you know and Cervantes in your life. You're just not going to read everyone you could possibly meet and have a nice drink with. So I don't see it as something to apologize for. And I always refuse the apology when people say to me, 
oh, I haven't read your book. I'm like, there's lots of books, you know? Right. I, I, you know, it's sort of like, um, let's all just hold hands and agree not to feel beholden to reading one another and somehow <laughs> advocating for one another because what an right. antiseptic universe it would be if that was what we were doing. So, I mean, I'm not going to name names because it sounds sort of... Uh, excessively um, provocative or hostile, but more of my contemporaries uh, are still waiting. I'm still waiting to discover how wonderful their books are right. than the reverse, because yeah, I've got student writing to read and I've yeah. got, got the kids you and I've got the about. Mets blogs to read. I mean, <laughs> there are only so many hours in a day. Right. What was the hardback that you were reading on the train on the way here? Oh, I'm uh, Alison Lurie's Foreign Affairs. And um, I mean, she's she's just a great example of the like hiding in plain sight. Anyone like you guys that I would say the name Alison Lurie to, they'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, Alison Lurie. I didn't know that name. But have you guys ever read a... I have this book of oh, hers waiting excellent. to be read, but I haven't read Oh, waiting read to be it. read. Yeah, That's good. Exactly. That's better. Yeah, so yeah. she's on your shelf. <laughs> you know, I came across her about five or six years ago. Actually, this is a good story. I first read Alison Lurie when I was at Yaddo because someone, all the books that were written partially at Yaddo are kind of on the shelves because everyone is so grateful that they send the finished result to Yaddo. So there's this collection of intriguing books and I've made a lot of great discoveries. I mean, actually, I think that's where Franzen first read Paula Fox. I think he writes about that. Mm -hmm. And she'd been there writing and he was there, you know, killing time, not working on the corrections or whatever he was doing. So he goes and he, in fact, he even says it was on, he, he was looking there because Franzen and Fox were next to each other in the Yaddo library. Well, uh, oh, Lurie and Lethem, what do you know? I No, but I wasn't doing that. But um, someone had said, this is even worse, someone had said, oh, God, she, there's this woman who wrote a novel, there's a scandalous novel about being at Yaddo that's really gossipy. And so, and it's called um, Regular People, or, or uh, not Ordinary People, I'm forgetting the title of it, but it's a slim, very, very sharp little book about being at a writer's colony, and it's unmistakably Yaddo. So I read, I gobbled that up in an afternoon, and then I I picked up another one of her books. And suddenly I was an Alison Lurie fan. And, you know, there's a, so we were talking about the New York Review of Books. There's a funny middle distance that I think is in some ways almost more treacherous than being totally a dark horse, totally out of print, totally forgotten. You can be rediscovered if you're totally out of print. But if you're just sort of hovering there in this kind of middle space, I felt this way about my friend Thomas Berger as well, that everyone knew his name. He wasn't quite eligible for, you know, you couldn't champion him as a real forgotten man because people did sort of remember who he was. And he had a famous book or two that had been turned into a, a big movie. So, you know, what more do you want, Thomas Berger? Well, you might want to be read. Alison Lurie, here she is. You know, I think she won the, the Pulitzer Prize. Wow. Um, you guys all nodded your heads like, oh, yeah, Alison Lurie. She's alive. She's even written novels in recent years. But, you know, what does it consist of to be to have all of the things one might want and yet no one's reading the books? Well, so I'm the Laura. I speak for Alison Lurie today, right? <laughs> I, but I, I don't do it out of a kind of perverse, um, you know, defiance. I do it because I can't stop reading her. She's really great. So the other thing that I wanted to ask you was one of the one of the things that this seems to be battling in between and because, I mean, even in the title, right, More Alive and Less Lonely, is this push and pull that you were talking about between <laughs> the private yeah. and the public, right? Yeah. And because... In many cases, what you are doing in many of these pieces is making something that was very much a private experience public. Right. Um, and at the same time, the writer is retreating from their literal public world, whether it's that ki that cute kid standing by the couch who you could be hanging out with and you're like, no, I'm going to go write instead. 
or just, you know, a life among colleagues or friends. You know, you go into the secret space to think up imaginary people instead. Um, Yeah, this this push and pull really, it obsesses me, torments me. Uh, even do you, is there one in which you feel more comfortable? Well, that you would say? I no. I mean, I one is always the antidote to the other. Mm-hmm. I, I'm ambivalent in the you know the root sense of the word, strong in both directions. I crave solitude when I'm with people, and I'm I'm howlingly lonely when I've been you know writing for 45 minutes. Suddenly, I'm like, where did the people go? <laughs> what have I done? That uh, desire, that crazy ambivalence, maybe also becomes the best part of the work where you put pieces of yourself and people you know into the characters and then the characters do that unholy thing of becoming real to you and you care about them uh, more than you should because they're just words on the page and you fill them with your um, both your best and some of your most shameful thoughts and, and then, then they can maybe matter to someone else. I was wondering, you write a lot about Philip K. Dick in this book and actually right before the election, I was reading a lot of Philip K. Dick because I just felt like nothing felt more accurate yeah, or something. He's, he's, a good, he's a good help. <laughs> yeah. So have current politics changed either your kind of reading diet or what you go towards or even um, maybe the way, I mean, now it seems like someone like Philip K. Dick really does not seem fringe to me. He seems yeah. like a total visionary. Well, just he in, was always a great, right. great critic of the, the collective paranoid political unconscious of our nation and of the post-war world that gives birth, that we're still in. You yeah. know, and I, this is what I really believe. The reason Philip K. Dick feels so relevant is that we're still living in, basically, in a way in 1957, in deep senses, the Cold War and the, the trauma of the two world wars and where that put us is unprocessed. And that's why we can have these convulsions that we're having, because we advance on one level, on the top layer reality moves forward, time flows, and on another layer, we're stuck trying to digest the incomprehensible product of the mid-century world, right? Right. So he he looked at that through his incredible, crazy lens that was so, he was such a, you know, he was like a super taster for the, for the late 20th century. Mm-hmm. He was like the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. So of course it feels, you know, vital to us now. And is that, are you, you were mentioning when you were writing Dissident Gardens, you did a lot of research into you know, the 20th century, are you feeling pulling, (laughs) are you pulled back to writing that kind of book again? Don't look at me like I'm going to, you know, I, now let me tell you what this all means. (laughs) I no, I'm just as helpless as everyone else. And it infiltrates my daily thoughts and unnerves me. And that means uh, my writing life as well. And my reading life. Now, sometimes I do very driven things. Like I really, in a quite almost blunderingly literal way, I did go and read a lot of Weimar era you know, German novels like Eric Kastner's Going to the Dogs, you know, it's helping me think about where we are. I I, I, I had a head start because I'd been, um, I'd gotten really, really powerfully identified with um, uh, Muziel's uh, The Man Without Qualities a couple of years earlier. And, and it, now it seems like it indexes the world we live in now. Like it's just, it's about 1913 Vienna, but it's really actually all, it, it's a novel about this exact moment. Right. And um, I also just careen helplessly. I, I try to do what I would normally do and, you know, read that Alison Lurie book I haven't gotten to yet. You right. know, I'm, I'm savoring the last couple because I've almost read all her novels now. And, you know, it's a matter of balancing in your reading and writing life what we're balancing in our daily operations. Being a, a citizen in a meaningful way, not a helpless way or a totally in a, you know, with a um, blinders on. And surviving, making the things you care about flourish which includes you, yeah. you know, going 
to the Mets website and, you know, <laughs> wasting a half an hour worrying about their pitching staff. Right. Because you have to be, you know, to have the world be worth living in, you have to contribute frivolity and, and joy as well. Um, I also wanted, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the essay called The Only Human Superhero about, uh, which I think starts off with this really wonderful anecdote about your two-year-old, he's two years old at this time, your son, and he gets a Batman um, lunchbox, which I think every young American male got something like. Mine was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so not Batman. I wasn't that cool. Um, but what I, one of the things that I love is where you you kind of talk about how Batman's great because he doesn't have the kind of glossiness or the overblownness of these kind of larger-than-life mutant-type uh, superpowers um, superheroes. You know, you say that, for example, Superman wears choo-choo trained pajamas. Batman wears an athletic version of a conservative suit and overcoat, which I really, <laughs> really like. Um, so it, one of the things that I'm wondering is what do you think that it is that we superheroes are everywhere now? Right. Um, I mean, not that it's they really obnoxious before, the way they're uh, all and the yeah, franchises are, yeah. are, you know, blown almost to uh, to just like gossamer like threads of actual plots. But I'm wondering, why do, you, why do you think that we crave figures like Batman? Like, what is still enduring about Well, right there's now? a lot of good and bad reasons, right? This, sure. this stuff is, uh, speaks to us so in such an uncanny way that can, it can make them seem both unbelievably flat and stupid. Like, why, why is that interesting at all? Mm -hmm. And yet somehow they're, they're getting under our skin in, in different ways. I mean, one thing that I, when I used the emblem of the superhero for the coming-of-age teenager you know, in, in The Fortress of Solitude, I was thinking about the way that the superhero combines the doubleness that's so perplexing about coming of age, which is that we are desperate for a public life, for a presentational self. We want to get over. We want to be famous. We want to we want to be impressive. And we're also so furtive. We're so obsessed with, like, no one understands me. We all have a little bit of that trench coat mafia uh, you know, masturbatory dankness to us. And the superhero smashes those two parts of self-becoming into one image. The superhero is really secretive and really public and, you know, embraced at the same time. It's like if you could manifest everything about being a teenager to the maximum, you'd be a superhero. You'd be like, everyone would be like, hey, there he goes, he's fantastic. And they'd be like, I have no idea who he is and he understands something that I could never even dream of and he's from a very weird place that I don't want to think about. You know, <laughs> so they, they see, but you know, it's and that of course is also true of the artist's life, that the artist thrives on the idea of being legible and viable and also of having this kind of dark matter that goes unexamined and that, you know, that's it's why, you know, artists are afraid to go into psychotherapy and might, they might take it away from me. You know, my, my, my special uh, thing that no one understands. My power. Yeah. yeah, my power. So they also, of course, you know, it, it has to be said, it's like our political responsibility right now, as we were just alluding to, they're fascist emblems of, of revenge and control. They really are, you know, mm -hmm. no matter how those things are modulated, they're also doing that work for us. And, and so, concentrated power. Yes, of course. You know, the vigilante is not a positive thing. But of course, the different ways that those wish fulfillments are modulated or counteracted in the image of the superhero, the way, for instance, the X-Men become a tribe of outcasts or queers at, at some level. Well, that's really interesting because there's another tension. What if my vigilante is also like my wounded person, you know, which mm, Batman himself mm, does. Yeah. He's, you know, they killed his parents. You know, he's a he's a figure of suffering. We could keep on talking, I'm sure, but we have to end there. Jonathan Leatham, thank you so oh, much for so much. coming here today and yeah. speaking with us. Thanks for having me. It's a great talk. We've been speaking with Jonathan Leatham, whose new book is More Alive and Less Lonely. 
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 